0: It annoys him that he's, he did like over 200 movies before Captain Spaulding, yet the majority of his fan base now is only know him from the Rob Zombie movies. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil T. Robot. Yes. See, he only gets one word at a time. The crying Canadian, the sensitive Serbian, Peter Gajic. Indubitably. If you guys want to help out the show you go to NordVPN because you kind of need a digital condom at this point. And that's what NordVPN is. Nord will protect your data. They will encode your data. They'll allow you to get around region locking. They'll kind of, like I said, a digital condom for some of the darker places of the web. What you do is you go to 1201beyond.com backslash DromeVPN. And for only $3.49 a month for a three-year plan, you can get Nord's protection. And you really need it. 1201 And also, if you're interested in sex toys or anything, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. We're going to kind of revisit a topic we talked about years and years ago. Sid Hag. Sid Haig just died, and I'm going to play the interview that I did with him, like, what was it, five, six years ago? Because I think it needs to be heard, and I think it's still relevant. With
1: Sid Haig's death, what did you guys think when you heard he, he died? When I heard, probably a couple weeks before he actually died, uh, that he was, he was sick, you always get worried whenever there's an older actor or director or some celebrity that you know that is older and you hear that they've gotten sick that it, it's like, oh no, because I, I love the guy, but a lot of people only came to know him recently. But he's eighty. It's it's not as easy to to beat something when you're eighty as it is when you're like twenty or thirty. So when I when I heard that he was sick, I got really worried. And then it came out that he was okay, and I was like, okay, good. But then just it it wasn't a surprise. It was sad, I was very very sad, but it really wasn't like as big like when when you have something came out that Anton Yelchin died. Like that was a surprise. Cuz the dude was like 27. Like that was a, and it wasn't like drug related, it was just a freak accident with his uh, you know being killed by his own car and it was just like, "Oh my god, what?" Sid Haig, it's depressing, it's sad. I will miss the guy. Was like, "Okay, you know what? 80 he lived a really good life. He had a lot of people who loved him, and I think uh he went out,
2: you know, on top. I think it's just the reality setting in that, like, all my heroes are in their 70s and their 80s now, and that's weird. That's a weird thing to think about because... They were my age now or a little older when I was really watching them a lot as a kid. And now they're all like 60, 70, 80 years old. And with Sid dying, I'm like, man, the, there's going to be a lot more coming up pretty, pretty soon. And um, I got pretty depressed about it. Not going to lie. I went back and watched some of his uh, some of his other movies. Um, Galaxy of Terror has always been one of my favorites. I've always loved his uh, his Corman work. I'll always remember the guy for just being constantly professional at, uh, at his craft. Always a great actor, a very chameleon-like actor. He could play pretty much any role. He could be funny. He could be scary. He could be dramatic. But his death just made me think that like, wow, every, everyone I like is, uh, is nearing the end. Um, everybody that's kind of been my, my hero for, for the past 30, 30-something years of my life. So that's, uh, that was, that was a bit of a crotch shot for sure. Um, and, uh, he will be missed and but as well as Cecil said he 80 years old he lived a great life nothing but good things said about the guy but at, but at the same time it's like you know uh it, it's still sad when when somebody you, you looked up to so much goes whether it be a family member or just an actor or an artist you've you've admired so much
0: and see to me Sid Haig was one of those guys you always knew you were going to get a great performance out of him. Whether it was him guest-starring on a Quincy episode or an A-Team episode or in a movie like Fred Olin Ray's Warlords, you were always going to get something good with Sid Haig. You can really tell... In all the memorial stuff about Sid Haig that came out after his death, where what generation somebody is from? Because there's lots of people that know him as Dragos from Jason of Star Command, or know him as that bald-bearded biker from every 80s TV show ever, or the more or more people that know <laughs> him as Captain Spaulding, which that did annoy him. It annoys him that he's he did like over 200 movies before Captain Spaulding, yet the majority of his fan base now is only know him from the Rob Zombie movies. That really kind of bothered him a little bit.
2: To be fair, the people that only know him as Spaulding tend to be, like, the younger people. Like, people even younger than me. People that are, like, 18, 22, that sort of thing. Or just the people that always go to conventions but don't really watch a lot of movies. Like, they'll just be like, oh, it's the guy from the those Rob Zombie House of Thousand Corpses movies. Clown dude. It kind of sucks that he's only known as that to some people. But at the same time, it's positive. Like, you know, Rob Zombie in a way really revitalized his career. Same with, uh, same with Bill Mosley's. I think it's, I think it's awesome that he... He shined a light on the, uh, on these amazing actors that did so many cool movies in the, the 70s and the 80s and stuff. And it's just great. They, they got a chance to shine again. And it's great that even though, um, uh, even though Sid's not really in the latest zombie movie all that long, at least he got to be in, in one more big movie. Like I, I think that's a really positive thing.
1: It's better that people know him for maybe something new than not know him at all. It shows that he has a staying power. Yeah, because the other thing, too, is now that he did, uh, you know, they liked him in the Rob Zombie movies, and now that he's passed, it absolutely is getting people to start checking out his older works, and maybe they will come to appreciate him more than they would have otherwise. I mean, how many actors have come and have been in, like, one really amazing thing? They never did anything else, and nobody's ever heard of them. At Mm. least he's got staying power and he's got the the ability now that you know he had his career revitalized can go back and look at his old stuff and appreciate it well
0: there's also the fact that Sid Haig is, you know, mostly known for the Rob Zombie movies or like, you know, like in Fred Olin Ray movies or Roger Corman movies, killing a guy or raping chicks. I mean, he, he made that comment that now is maybe a little problematic about when he worked with George Lucas on THX 1138. He gave an interview years ago about how fun it was to rape that chick in that scene. And he's gonna <laughs> all alright, that, that's a slightly problematic comment now. I get what you meant, Sid, but just saying it like that was probably not the best wording. You know, th- this is a man who, he's worked with George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Alfred Hitchcock, Rob Zombie, Quentin Tarantino, Fred Olin Ray, Roger Corman, you know, you you name a director or a producer. And Sid Haig made a movie with them or was on a TV show with them. One of those is Norman Lear. Sid Haig said when he got Dragos and Jason of Star Command for Lou Scheimer, he said, I will never, ever do a kid's show. You know, no one's ever going to ask me to be on a kid's show. And then he gets Dragos and gets opens him up to a whole new audience. And then he jokingly said, now I'm never, ever going to be on a soap opera. But in the late 70s, Norman Lear created a show called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which was a late night, very adult satire of soap operas but it was played exactly like a soap opera and Sid Haig played the racist homophobic sexist character Tex on that for 126 episodes so Sid was on soap operas um,
2: the scene in the diner where he's going on that really sexist rant is, is from you mean this scene
3: and sluts is all alike just love teasing a man you see that she heard that but she wouldn't turn around got to remember one thing, sluts is cagey. She ain't never going to lose that slut look no matter how hard she tries. Because there's always going to be a little too much rouge on the cheeks and a little too much mascara in the eyes. There's always going to be a little too much of everything. Now, why do you think she wears so much lipstick? It's because she knows that by the end of the night, she's going to be kissing so many men and she's going to need that much so it'll last. Man, I'm going to tell you something. You put a diamond on a slut and it'll turn to rhinestone. She's got cash registers in her eyes. that keep lighting up sales, sales. Every man that she ever slept with has left his mark on her face. Now, you look at that slash on her face. How do you think that got there? Well, her new lover... Come home, found her in bed with another man and took his fine leather belt to her face, but it didn't work, because you can't never beat the slut out of a slut. It's like a disease, man. There ain't no cure for it, except men and lots of them.
1: Thanks, why don't you give the girl a break?
3: It ain't her fault the way she is. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Man, if you believe that you believe anything uh, I'm gonna tell you something. There's only two ways for a woman in this life either an honest wife or a low-lying slut That bitch I Could make her right here and now and she'd let me you know why? Cause she can't say no Ain't that the truth, sweetheart? That'll get you hot, won't it? I mean, won't that make you feel all hot inside?
0: Yeah. That was actually his first appearance on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. He wasn't meant to be a regular. And that was he a was hell just a of a po-
2: performance. Like it's chilling. That, in your that's, field. that's
0: that's the point. He was so good. This was just supposed to be a one-time guest appearance. He was so good. Norman Lear said, "We want to make you a regular." So from that point on, he became a regular on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And his character was fantastic. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman is a show more people need to see. It, it, it's gonna be a. Li- it's a little hard to watch watch because of the fact that it is played like a soap opera. And I guess if you don't understand that it's a satire of soap operas, you might start rolling your eyes (laughs) at it. But if you get that, and it is 325 half-hour episodes, so it'll take a while. But Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman is one of the most subversive fucking tv shows of the 1970s and if you go and seek this out you will not be sorry although if you are looking for sid he doesn't show up till episode it it is it is on dvd but he doesn't show up till about halfway through the series so he's not in the early episodes if you're looking for him because like i said he was just supposed to be a guest appearance and then it turned into i'm in every episode after this because they loved my sluts is all alike speech that's the power of Sid Haig. Even even when he's on something like I said, like on a, a Quincy episode or an A Team episode or Amazing Stories, you can never say Sid Haig phoned in his performance. He's always giving one hundred percent, even if it's a three line role. I remember when he was on the pilot episode of the Shaft TV series. He's not even credited. He's just one of the the big pimp guys.
1: Bodyguards. And that's it. He doesn't even have a line of dialogue. And he's intense as hell. Because he's Sid f***ing Hag the first time I w- I was really going over my trying to rack my brain when was the first time I saw Sid Haig and it was either Buck Rogers or you know syndicated Buck Rogers or syndicated uh Jason of Star Command I it's one of those two I remember seeing him in a sci-fi role but I can't remember which one it was but I just remember you know he had a much bigger part in Jason of Star he Command he was the main and, villain yeah like two episodes. yeah he was the main but in in Buck Rogers he was only in like two episodes he had that much of a presence he made made you remember him. He made actually made me want more of that guy. And, you know, since I've seen him in tons of movies over the years, and it was really nice to see his career get a a jump back when he started starring in the Rob Zombie films, like he really hadn't been in anything for a while that that was that was by
0: choice. He actually reti- he he retired, well, he retired in retired, 1992 right? and became a certified hypnotherapist. Think about that. Say you're going to get some repressed memory or some childhood trauma. You're going to hypnotherapy, and Dragos from Jason of Star Command is your hypnotherapist.
1: I think that would be weird. <laughs> you're like, what? Wait, wait, wait a minute! Didn't you kill was, people uh, in movies? <laughs> Then, but he had the, uh, he had the part in Jackie Brown with Tarantino, so, and Tarantino is all, is known for, I mean, god, he, uh, he brought Travolta's career back from... The complete dead, for better or worse, he was not doing anything, and he brought him back. So he's he's always known for bringing back a lot of classic actors, and uh, so he brought him back. And then six years later, he was in House of Thousand Corpses, and I think it's just uh, it's cool. It's it's um, it's interesting to see that in his career. And it's also
0: interesting to see how he looked at his career. He looked at everything. He says it right in the interview. He's very picky about the scripts he takes, except when rent is due. (laughs) So you you, you can almost tell when you look over his like IMDB page, you can go, that one he wanted to do, that one he needed to pay the rent that
1: month. (laughs) To us, it's something special, but to a lot of them, it's just work. It's worth a job, yeah. It's a job. And especially when somebody like that who uh, like Sid Hague, where they have like this ridiculously long list of credits and some of them are like these award winning beloved movies, and these other ones you're like, Why the hell did he do that? <laughs> oh because because he you know, the rent was due.
2: You're not like a big blockbuster guy. You gotta keep working. You know, you're you're working really more for not necessarily a small amount, but you're not making the big blockbuster numbers, so you gotta keep doing it. You can't exactly have that luxury of being picky with your roles like a you know, like a Robert De Niro or or a Ryan Gosling. You know, you're not a, you're not a megastar. You're more of a more of a Michael Madsen or more of a Sid Haig. You kinda if the rent is due, you, you gotta go do it. Uh, do the space movie or or the cheap vigilante movie? Like you, you, you kind of got to do it if you got to make those bills. Bruce Campbell calls those alimony movies. <laughs>
0: Bruce Campbell has said there's many alimony movies on his IMDb, oh, and he, sure won't, he, 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 he won't specifically say which ones, though, but you can tell. I can oh, tell that, that, which of those are, are very
2: uh, blatantly obvious which ones they are. That
1: Sci-Fi Channel one where he's fighting the CGI bugs, it's like... Oh, oh, Alien
2: apocalypse.
1: It's like, oh man, like, rent was due. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: but, okay, so on that note, I'm going to play the interv- this interview I did with Sid Haig. This is like five or six years old, so it's technically a little out of date. Sid is such a nice guy. He's so gracious. He answered every single question that I had. And let's see if you guys can tell that I had a tooth pulled this day and I was messed up on painkillers when I did this because I think I hit it pretty well. You've been on Batman, you've been on Star Trek, you've been on Westerns, on sci-fi shows, you've been on big-budget shows, low-budget shows. Do you have a particular favorite? I, I don't mean like a specific show, but do you like doing action movie TV or low-budget television? or What do you like doing the most as an actor?
4: I, You know, I, I go for the story. I go for the script. Okay? And if it's something that I can connect with, and feel good about, the genre really doesn't make any difference to me. I mean, I'll do a chick flick if it's a good script.
0: Is that how you pick your movies as well, that, that it's based on the script? When
4: I can, the reality of life is that the bills got to be paid. Sometimes you just do something, you know, just because uh, you have bills to pay, like everybody else. I, you know, I've I've been fortunate in being able to do some film work and even some television work that uh, I feel really good about.
0: I'm older than my co-hosts, and I showed them the abduction of Laura Hager's clip from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, the you can't beat the slut out of a slut speech. They were just astonished at how amazing you delivered that speech and the fact that that aired on 70s television.
4: Yeah, well, I'll tell you, that was, uh, that was a show that was like way ahead of his time. Norman Lear was the executive producer, creator of the show. That worked out to be something that was just a treasure to do, to go to work every day, and probably one of the biggest compliments that I was ever given because I did that episode that you're talking about, and a couple of weeks later, they called and asked if I would like to do another one. And I said, yeah, sure, I had a lot of fun. And 126 episodes later, they killed me.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that on the Jason of Star Command DVD. Was yeah. was it weird working on a soap opera for somebody with your history of, you know, basically killing people on TV and in movies up to that point?
4: Uh, it wasn't weird. It was just, it was fun to be able to do something different. You know, I it's, you always want to kind of stretch the envelope and do do something that is different from all the stuff that you've been typecast in.
0: Well, speaking of that, probably your other role that people are shocked that, you know, Sid Haig from the Rob Zombie movies and all that is in, was Jason of Star Command, which I didn't see first run, but I grew up watching on Saturday mornings in syndication. I think it's amazing to see you as Dragos.
4: Things have a funny way of working out. I was at Rob Zombie's wedding. And at the reception, uh, I was talking to his brother. And he said, this is so weird. And I said, what, the wedding? He said, no, standing here talking to you. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, when Rob and I were kids, we used to get up every Saturday morning and, work to, and watch Jason of Star Command. And he scared the crap out of us every Saturday. Rob saw me poppy simp- in the kind of films that he liked to watch. And he said... And this is actually a quote from him when he gave me the uh, Igor Award at Universal Studios. He said, if I ever get to direct a film, I want that guy in it. And that goes back to Jason of Star Command.
0: Do you, ha- do you have people that recognize you more from the Jason of Star Command, Mary Hartman's, or being on the A-Team or Star Trek? Or is, do you have more of an audience nowadays with the, the Rob Zombie movies and you know Jackie Brown and whatnot?
4: It, it's more the recent stuff. People, people, people think I started my career with a House of a Thousand Corpses. So yeah, it's just the way it goes.
0: Well, speaking of starting your career, at the beginning of your career—I don't mean the very beginning—but I mean you, throughout your career, you've worked with some huge-name directors. I mean, you've worked with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and then you've also worked with Roger Corman and whatnot. Which what what of the two worlds is the most fun? I know you said you go for the script, but I mean just on an acting level, is it more fun being on amazing stories or on Werewolf?
4: Wow, it's it's amazing that you you brought up those two shows. Werewolf was a uh, a situation where Tommy Sands was supposed to direct that episode and he got the flu. And so the producers, one of which I had a, a strong association with, uh, John Ashley, just called the guy who was directing the present episode and said, you're going to have to stay and, and do this next episode. And he says, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. I haven't even finished my episode yet. You know? He said, well, tough. That's just, you're just going to have to do it. He said, okay. Send me the script. And so they did. And he read the thing and he said, okay, this is what I want. I don't want you to send me anybody that is not theatrically trained. Stage actors is all on. So that's how I got the job because I was one of those guys. He directed the whole the basically the uh, almost the entire episode took place in a boxcar. So he used the parameters of the boxcar like a stage, like and, and the, the the ends, the two ends, the right and left end of of the boxcar were like the proscenium of a stage. And so that's the way he did it. He staged it. And the cameras were moving more than the actors that were coming in for two shots and singles and this, that, and the other thing. We just kept going. And he finished the show a day early. It was a a good episode. It was was really, uh, I think, one of their higher rated episodes. So that's how that thing worked out. I also, (laughs) I don't know why I forgot, I also worked with um, Hitchcock. And uh, that was a, uh, a funny situation because... I got called in to do the, the interview for, uh, Topaz. The secretary answered her little remote thing, whatever, and, and said, uh, Mr. Hitchcock will see you now. And I went and found the bar and I heard come in from the inside. And I walked in and he was over on the side getting something out of a file cabinet or whatever. And so he was walking back across to his desk and, uh, his wife had Directed, uh, uh, decorated his office for him, and there was like Irish lace uh, uh, curtains on the windows. and as he walked across, you got the famous profile, and I started to laugh, and he looked at me, and I just kind of motioned towards, you know, where he was, and he realized what I was seeing, and he started to chuckle, and he sit down, my boy, and so we sat, and we talked for a few minutes, and I got the job. Kind stay on your toes and uh, go with the role. Things just kind of happen and, and work out for you.
0: Well, and then um, I can't remember if it—I w- can't remember if it was the producers of Jason of Star Command. They related a, a story where they were behind on some of their creditors, and then you came out in full Dragos makeup, and they claimed you were the head of the company and it chased off the bill collector. Is that a true story?
4: That is a true story. It wasn't a bill collector guy that was trying to sell something, okay, and he just kept showing up and, and saying, well, the the owner of the company isn't here, and, you know, the secretary's trying to protect the, everybody, and he just kept coming back, and, and uh, so one day he came back just as I was walking down the hall, and I said, you know, uh, is the owner of the company, and the secretary said, yeah, that's him right there, and pointed at me, he turned around, he took one look and walked out the door and never came back.
0: You've been on so many TV shows. I actually think you probably have done more TV than you have movies, but yet you're more well-known for your movies. Do you think people should know you more from Star Trek and MacGyver and the Misfits of Science and Hill Street, or from Galaxy of Terror and Forbidden Dance and Warlords and whatnot?
4: Well, I don't know. Everybody, I think, over the age of 50 gets all the TV stuff. That
0: they kind of focus on the films. Because I I remember seeing you on the A Team, and I just thought this guy. You know I I I was when that aired I was eight, and I was like this guy is awesome. And then I'd see you <laughs> pop up on Fall Guy, and then you'd be on Hill Street, and then on Misfits of Science, and it's like this guy is just awesome. I mean you outclassed the A Team on their own show. <sighs>
4: Oh, well, thank you for that, but I, I don't know. That's that's a pretty big jump there. Yeah, that, that show was was great because uh, George Papard, who certainly had a great career goal for himself, you know, at the completion of every scene, when the, when the George would say, "Okay, print that," he would gather the actors together for the next scene, and we would go over it, go over it, go over it. And his theory was that if anything gets screwed up, it's not going to be because of, me, because of us. And so we were ready to rock the whole time.
0: You mentioned earlier about how the script is what you look for. I, I can't remember if it was just an interview you gave or it was on the Galaxy of Terror DVD. But you mentioned that you didn't like the dialogue. That's why q ends up being essentially a silent character in the movie. Was that it? issue of you liked the character but not the dialogue or something that changed later because I adore Galaxy of Terror. I love that movie. And you have such a glorious death being killed by your own
4: severed arm. That was a situation where Roger wanted me to to do that. Roger Corman wanted me to do that film. And I said, fine, send me the script, you know. And so he did. Along with the deal, I read it and I liked the character. But I, I called him and I said, okay, I'll do this on one condition. And he said, you're not getting any more money. I said, I know that. Okay. I mean, we have this great relationship where he would send me a script and a contract. Either I signed the contract and worked or didn't sign the contract and didn't work. No hard feelings either way. Okay. So he said, you're not getting any more money. I said, no. He said, so what's the condition? I said, did I do it mute? Why? I said, have you read that shit? And he goes, oh. Yeah, okay, fine, you can do it. So that was how that worked.
0: You did have one line, though, the live and die by the crystals.
4: The director forced me to say that line. And since I'm old school, there are certain rules that apply when working with directors. Number one, the director is always right. Number two, if the director is ever, ever wrong, refer to rule number one. That's what I did. I gave the director the respect that directorship deserves. said that stupid line. I'd love to have that cut out of the
0: film. Well, that said, even though Galaxy of Terror was kind of obscure for quite a while, it's got a huge cult following nowadays. Do you, do you ca- kind of look back at it a little more fondly, like maybe you wish you had done the dialogue, or you're glad you stood your ground?
4: No, well, I'm glad I stood my ground. Still not that enthusiastic about having to say that one line, uh, and I think you know the reason why the thing caught on later is because there were all of those films, you know, all of Roger's films had like l- limited release uh, theatrical releases. People just didn't catch up to it, and then all of a sudden, when it started appearing on you know the DVD started appearing, people caught on to it, and friends would tell friends, and blah blah blah, and and then the thing just really took off. And, and a lot of people say it's one of their favorite 5-5 films. So, you know, that's, that's just the way things work out. I think the longest run we had on a film was uh, The Big dollhouse House that we did with Roger um, Corman. It was Pam Greer's first film. And that thing reportedly, because I wasn't there, but I this is what I've heard Really great really findings. And whatnot, that film played at the same theater in Tokyo for six months straight, and they just kept wearing out prints, and Marge just kept selling them more prints. So <laughs> it was great.
0: Well, w- with you doing low-budget TV and you know low-budget movies, high-budget movies, high-budget TV, do you ever have an uh, issue going between the, the the different worlds of that? Like, you know, all of a sudden you're you're doing Buck Rogers and then maybe next week you're doing Galaxy of Terror and the Aftermath. Is there a difference going between the two worlds of low budget versus relative high budget?
4: Well, okay, there is a difference just in the fact that TV is different than film because TV, you've got to hack it out every day. You have to have, you know, 19 to 21 setups every day. Basically, when it comes right down to it, TV is something that you do to keep the the audience interested until the next commercial shows up. And we go from commercial to commercial. You get some good television, okay? But it really doesn't give you a chance to develop a character, particularly when you're, like, a guest. And that guest, then that character will never show up again on the show. So, you know, there, there's... There's not a lot of creativity flowing through there, particularly you know, for for a guest. Now, as the regulars, as far as the regulars are concerned, yeah, they can you know they can take time to to flesh out that character episode to episode and make it something really interesting. It's just a, a rush-up kind of deal with what television is supposed to. High budget film where you've got a chance to develop something, you know. The directors are willing to spend more time with you in a film. Good example of that was when I did, uh, Che, which was the story of Che Guevara. My character was the leader of the Bolivian Communist Party. And when Che showed up in Bolivia and started to, uh, you know, make a big push to, to make Bolivia completely a communist country. I felt a brotherhood there. My character felt a, a, a brotherhood with Jay. And as the film developed, Jay started getting really maniacal. And at the end of the film, I basically separate myself. And the director, was Richard Fleischer, who just a year before, won an Academy Award for um, Uh, Dr. Brulittle, the Rex Harrison, Dr. Brulittle. And um, so he set up this scene and I was up on a rock and Omar was uh, in a hammock uh, kind of trying to get control of his asthma. It just kind of felt weird to be separated, you know, because we were like brothers. Uh, At least I felt that way. My character felt that way. So after he got through setting up the scene, Omar looked at me and he said, Sid, what's wrong? I said, uh, nothing, nothing's wrong. He goes, come on, tell me. You you know, you you look like you're not happy about something. I said, know, I just feel like there's too much space between us here and it should be a little more intimate. We start that way and then the anger can come and we explode into, you know, whatever happens next. And he thought about it a second and he called Richard over. And he said, Richard, I have an idea. What what if we were to stage this where Sid was like really close to where I am, and he did that because it's not that he knew that, that Richard Pleasure wasn't going to pay any attention to me, but if it came from from Omar, then you know the the attention would be given, and that was I think that was a very giving moment for Omar to do that for the show itself, and so that's how that played out. Uh, but if it was television, I've had directors on television say, Sid, I I understand where you're going and I like it, but I don't have time to cover it, so just say the words."
0: when you have that told to you, just say the words. Does it does it kind of diminish what you're feeling being there? Like maybe you're all excited on the show and then you realize you're just you know an actor instead of the character. If that makes sense.
4: Initially, it did kind of hit me, you know, a little hard, and then I realized what was going on, and, and it, it, the work just had to get done, and so I would just say
0: the words. Well, as we were talking about with you, like you know, dancing between the worlds of high budget, low budget TV and movies. What about behind the scenes when it comes to like the amenities and whatnot? Because there are certain actors who, like like Eric Roberts, he'll do. Batman one week, and then he'll be doing a no-budget horror movie the next week. And I've worked with Eric Roberts, and he said it's so different being on like a Warner Brothers movie than on this little movie shooting in the woods of Wisconsin. Do you ever find that being a little jarring, The like maybe the amenities or how each project is shot when you go from high budget to low budget?
4: You know, I kind of know what to expect based on what the budget of the film is, and I know not to expect too much, and the thing that taught me that was working in the Philippines. I mean, I had done like four or five films in the Philippines before somebody actually came up with the idea of having a chemical toilet, okay? Uh, And we were dressing behind bushes and uh, just because there were no amenities. On the other hand, there's a situation where there's too much. I did a series with John Viner called McNamara's band, and when we were shooting the pilot, there were five regulars on the shelf, and when we showed up on location, we were doing the pilot. There were five Winnebagos. Then there was you know honey wagons for the for the which are small little dressing rooms for the supporting cast, and he goes. What's all of this? He said, well, those are your, your Winnebago's. There's one for each one of you. He said, well, what are those little things? He said, well, that's where everybody just kind of get dressed. He said, oh, well, I'll tell you what. Which one is the best Winnebago? And I said, well, that one right there is yours. He said, okay, keep that one, get rid of the other four, and we'll all get dressed in the little tiny rooms. The Winnebago will be the place where we just hang out. And, that was something that was just like unheard of because, you know, you went from Charlie's Angels where everybody had their own Winnebago. Every one of the women had their own hairdressers and their own makeup people and their own this, that, and the other thing, okay? Because nobody wanted to be the first one called for makeup. You know, why why show up at 6.30 when somebody else is, is showing up at 8 to have the same thing done? So they all had their individual makeup people and individual wardrobe people and their own individual when amigos and blah blah blah. So we just kinda of turn that around and everybody on the show, all five of us had our assignments. Okay. One guy would bring in the uh the pastries and somebody else would bring in the sodas and whatnot and somebody else food, whatever. And um and that was our our party wagon. And we'd all get dressed and, and we'd go in there and play music and laugh and joke and move around and and they parked it like a quarter of a mile away from the set because we were just crazy and then they would send the car for us to come and do the scenes. But, you know, that was like a complete turnaround from from everything else that had been done. So, um, you know, things, things change depending on the personalities.
0: Well, speaking of the personalities, you and some of the other people that really did a lot of television and then movies, you guys all have this kind of genial, very nice, very down-to-earth quality to you. People like you and Michael Ironside and John Saxon and people like that. Did you ever run into any egos? I mean, any of the problems with you know the main cast members or the star of the movie or even an arrogant director? Or any, I mean, anything where you personally ran into an ego problem of somebody else? You know, a movie star or
4: something? Really, I've been very... Lucky in that aspect, I haven't had to deal with, you know, super ego problems. There was, there was one case where uh, we were doing uh, McNamara's band, and the guy who was like, a, I think he was a first assistant director or something, was one of those screamers that just like was hollering at everybody to get him going. John Minor didn't like that at all. I was feeling a little crazy about it myself. And since John was also a producer on the show, the next day that guy wasn't there anymore. We had a very genial, you know, assistant director and uh, kind of understood that you don't holler at people to get jobs done. You just ask people and do it and will do it. And, But that was like the only time I really had any kind of thick ego thing. And it wasn't even from a cast
0: member, it was from somebody in the crew. You have a very unique relationship with your fans. You seem to be really down-to-earth with your fans at signings and conventions and whatnot. What do you think about the Sid Haig fan base? Whether it's the older people like me who grew up on Jason of Star Command, or like Rob Zombie, or the new people who know you from the Rob Zombie movies. What's your relationship like with the fans?
4: My relationship with the fans, I think, is good and it's healthy and it comes from a good place. See, I understand that those are the people who put food on my table. And I am not going to disrespect them by not responding to them in, in, in whatever way. These are people who I demand that I give them the respect that they deserve. because. They buy the tickets, they buy the DVDs, they buy the tickets and the, 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 the t-shirts and the sweatshirts and all of the crazy stuff that we sell, okay? The action figures and everything else. And so why would I snub somebody that does, extend themselves that much to me and for me? That's it's, it's just common decency and, and, and being human, you know? You treat somebody well. That, that that appreciates what it is that you do and, and, and shows it by giving up their money. You know, and that's that's crazy. i i I made a vow that I you know I would never raise my prices and, and I'm sticking to
0: that. Speaking of the fan base, what do you like to be remembered for more? Doing the kids stuff like Jason Star Command or Electra Woman and Dinah Girl or Wonderbug doing the more serious drama stuff like Mary Hartman? Or doing the sci-fi stuff where you're killing people and shooting laser guns. What What do you want to be remembered for the most out of your very vast career?
4: I'm just thrilled to death that people remember. Whatever I've done that they can connect with, that's, I'm good with that.
0: So you don't have a preference whether somebody... Maybe loved you, you know, on Wonderbug or Electra Woman and Dyna Girl, or loved you killing somebody in the Filipino jungle for
4: Roger Corman? Doesn't make any difference. As long as I did something to please them and something that they remembered, I did my job.
0: Well, speaking of your job, what did you, oh, uh, what, what do you personally, as Sid Haig, what's more fun to act? It's like, you know, in a cop show. Where maybe you're a thug, maybe you're a police officer, or in a sci-fi show, what's more fun to act on as a like a, a set? Would you rather be on the backlots at Universal or a completely made-up world by James Cameron?
4: Well, here again we come to what the project is. I have fun with stutter, with things that that stretch the imagination, you know, and, and sci-fi certainly does that. Uh, horror does that cop shows are cop shows and there's good ones and there's bad ones uh, but they pretty much deal with one thing crying boom done <laughs> so um, you know I I, I enjoy working things that are a little bit out there I've enjoyed doing comedies I had a great time doing uh, Choo Choo and the Philly Flash uh, with Carol Burnett and Alan Arkins it, it's doing the unpredictable we know, it, we know what's going to happen at a cop show. Somebody's going to find somebody dead, and then for the next fifty-nine minutes, we find out who it is, and we throw them in jail, and that's the end. With sci-fi or horror or comedy or whatever, you don't have that. At least if it's a good script, you you don't have that that uh, footprint that's you know
0: there. Well, speaking of that footprint, like I, I just mentioned, James Cameron, who you worked with on Galaxy terror, and you also worked with George Lucas when he was just starting, and you worked with quite a few what are now some huge filmmakers when they were f- first starting out. Do they remember you? Do they, you know, call you up oh, maybe evident- to audition for the new movies and stuff? Or
4: Evidently they don't because I've never been called by either
0: I had to ask the question though, because you worked with Lucas and, and Cameron, so how different is it? Because a lot of your TV work, even even some of the more comical stuff, is is more straight straight laced. But then you also did stuff like Just the Ten of Us and Sledgehammer. Do you like doing the straight up comedy stuff as well, where you're not trying to pull comedy out of a serious scene where it's
4: meant to be funny? I I enjoy that. I do I do enjoy doing comedy. And and the, the funny thing about Just the Ten of Us, you know, Bill Kirkenbauer started on growing things as a coach. Work is the highest extension of play, because with work there's a product at the end. With play, there's just you know there's good feelings. You know that's that's where my head is. That's if I'm having fun doing something, it's usually going to turn out pretty well.
0: Have you ever had issues with when you see the episode as it airs, or when you see the final cut of the movie? Have you ever been unhappy with what the producers did to it?
4: Oh. Uh, Probably. I can't think of anything right off the bat. The one thing that surprised me was very early on in my career. As a matter of fact, it was my first television show, which was The Untouchables. I was playing this character who was a hitman. uh, And uh, I was torturing and killing these people because the, 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 the mob wanted to get all of the rights to sell milk at the World's Fair in Chicago. So I had to get these guys that had the milk contracts and get rid of them. And at the end, they had somebody who was going to turn state's witness on, on the mob, and they were leading him into the, uh, uh, police station. And I appeared on the roof of the building across the street and shot him. And then they turn around and shoot me, and I fall off the roof, and well, I'm done. Well, this was my first television show. So I was really you know, hyped to, to, to watch it when it came on. And I was there at my girlfriend's house, that we were watching the show, and I shot the guy, and then nothing happened. They didn't turn, they didn't shoot me, I didn't die. I'm going, what's up? So I called my agent the next day, and I said, you know, what's going on? And I, 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 they cut out that scene. And she said, well, I don't know, but I'll, I'll check. So she got back to me about an hour later and she said, well, the reason they didn't do that is that they want you to be a recurring character on the show. Oh, okay, great. My first television show and I get an offer to become a a recurring character. Then there was a big to-do about presenting Italians in in a bad light and one thing or another. and there was pickets. Going around there, I think it was NBC. So they just they canceled the show. That's how the show got canceled. It wasn't because of bad ratings. It was because it was offensive to some people. That was one of those cases where you know something was cut out, and I I wound up winning because of it. Well,
0: what about something like where you are essentially a separate part? I'm thinking of like House of the Dead too. Your character, basically, you've got your scenes, and then the rest of the movie happens. When you see the final movie, do you kind of go, what the hell was that?
4: Probably exactly what I said.
0: (laughs) Because I'm trying to dance around the fact that I thought you were the only good thing about House of the Dead too. Well, thank
4: you. But when you look at that, you know, I hit the girl. She doesn't die. I get out the tire iron, and I, I, I hit her in the head. Boom, she's dead take her back to the lab, put her down on the on the operating table, and then systematically cut every piece of clothing off of her body so she's absolutely naked 100%. And then I give her a shot in the arm. What? <laughs> that's, that's just the craziest thing I've ever, you know, come across. I said, why, why am I doing it? Why can't I just, like, roll up her sleeve and give her a shot? No, no, no.
0: Because it's an exploitation movie, you got to exploit something, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> it was
4: well, crazy,
0: though. Now, I've, I've read the story that you gave up acting in the early 90s, and then you only came back when Tarantino wanted you to play the judge in Jackie Brown. What was it that made you want to give up for the five years between Boris and Natasha and Jackie Brown?
4: Well, it wasn't really a case of giving up. It was a case of you know what, I'm just going to stand back for a little bit and wait for somebody to figure out that I can do something more than just point a gun at somebody's face. So when Quentin called, uh, I mean, he called my house. I don't know how he got my phone number, but I guess when you're Quentin Tarantino, you're you know like the CIA. He said, hey, he said, hey. okay, fine. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he called and he said, I understand it. You don't want to do any more stupid heavies. I've written a part for you as the judge, Jackie Brown. I won't take no for an answer. You're gonna do this. Okay, boss. There we really were. And he didn't tell Pam Greer that he had cast me in that role. So when she showed up on the set and she saw me in the robe, she cracked up laughing, she hit the floor.
0: Being in the Tarantino movie, which is obviously a big boost, kinda got everything rolling again? No. Nothing happened.
4: <laughs> until I I got the script for uh House of Thousand Corpses. And that was something, you know, because in that, in that time period when I was waiting for somebody to wake up, I was still busy. I was still active. I was working for a company that was doing basically commercials and um, educational videos and, and documentaries and stuff like that. Uh, I was, I, I had probably about a third of the commercials that were on uh, Comcast, where my wrote the copy and produced it and directed it and did the editing, stuck in the music, the whole ball of wax for, for all that time until uh, you know, I got the call to go to this building and sign a letter of nondisclosure and take the script home and read it. And if you like it, the part is yours. And that was House of a Thousand Corpships.
0: And obviously that thrust you back into the limelight. Now, I mean, even in the 90s, when things started to, dry up's not the right word, when things, when you kind of put your foot down waiting for something to happen, a lot of these TV shows you'd only see in reruns, right? I'm assuming you probably recorded them yourself, so you had a copy. Is it any different now when you can go to Best Buy and you can see almost an entire wall of that you can go... I was in an episode of that, I did one of those, I did two of those, I did one of those. Have things changed when it comes to looking back at your career?
4: I just, I look back at my career and just kind of get a good feeling that I was able to do all of that work. You know, uh, this is a business that you have to be, you have to be tough to be in this business and to hang on. When I went to school, I went to the Pasadena Playhouse and with a very impressive alumni, dean of the college, and gave a little orientation speech, and he said, there's three things that you need to become an actor. First of all, is wealthy parents. And I went, well, that lets me out. He said, because it's expensive. You have to buy the pictures, you have to have the right clothes, you have to have a car, you have to drive here in there and do this, that, and the other thing, and phone people. And so it did, you know, it just takes a lot of money to get things going. And I could understand that. He said, and the second thing is you have to be tenacious. And I said, aha! That I am. He said, uh, and the third thing is if you happen to have a little talent, it'll help. And, uh, so I took the two out of the three and made it work. I, I, don't let go. I, I never had a backup plan. And this is something that I, you know, I've told kids that have asked me about, you know, how do you do this and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if you're passionate about something, I don't care what it is, whether it's acting or, or cooking or anything else, okay? You want to be a chef. If you're passionate about something, and you follow that path, and you As Winston Churchill said to graduating class of Oxford University, you never quit. Never, never, never quit. You never have a backup plan. Because when things get tough, you will back up. And then your dream dies. That's the way I worked it. You know, I mean, when I was living uh, at school and living in the men's dormitory, We all had little cubicles in the kitchen that we kept our stuff in, you know, dry goods and stuff. Nobody kept anything in the refrigerator because it did get stolen. So I went in there one night and it was, all I had was a box of rice. And I said, well, okay, that's rice. And I picked it up and it was one of those empty milk carton routines. It was like, there was hardly anything in it. And there was basically a fat tablespoon of rice left in the box. I don't know why I kept it. But I... I poured it out into my hand, put it in my mouth, drank a glass of warm water and waited for it to swell, but I wasn't going to quit. I would never quit. If I have any success at all, it's because of that philosophy.
0: And I think that shines through because, I mean, like I pointed out earlier, you just look at your body of work and you were working pretty consistently You can't just do that as a goof. That has to be something you work at. So clearly you worked at this, which brings me to, I guess, my next question. How did you work at this? Did you get roles on Hill Street and all that Were they mainly offered to you? Or did you go to your agent and say, Hill Street Blues is a fantastic show. I want to be on Hill Street.
4: Well, there's a, that, that always happens. You know, actors will call their agents and say, "I want to be on this show. I want to be on that show. How come I'm not doing this show or that show or the other show?" You know, that that's that's something that's constant because actors are paranoid uh, and they they want to do stuff that sometimes uh, is just not right. You know, and I had that conversation with uh, uh, one of my agents, and he said, "You know what? Come to the office and." And so I went to the office and he handed me the, the breakdowns for all these shows. He said, find me a show in there that, that you would fit in. And I looked through this whole stack of television shows uh, with, with roles, and there just wasn't really anything for me to play. And so that's when I just calmed down and waited for things to happen. And, and sometimes that's, that's just what you have to do. You know, it's like going fishing. You can't force the fish to. Take the bait, okay? You gotta sit there and wait for a hundred fish to come along. There you go. But by the same token, because I was working so much, there came a point in time where, uh, I had a guest starring role on a different television series every night of the week. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Every night and saw on one show or another. And so I said, This I have to put the money out to take out an ad for this. So I took out an ad in a, a variety and uh Hollywood Reporter and my agent got a call from the people that were doing Batman. And we got this guy is doing a guest starring role on every show on television except mine. Get him in here now. And uh, so I, I went down to the office and read the script, you know, go in that room over there, read the script and whatever you want, except for the part of uh, King Tut, uh, whatever you want, it's yours. And so that's what I did. You know, those, those times are rare, but I took advantage of the situation. The fact that I was doing all those guest appearances in that one week to, ge- to generate more work. And I've worked myself out of work, and I've restarted my career like five, six times. The attitude is, oh my God, Sid hey, we've seen enough. Sid hey, okay, well, give me somebody else. And then it comes back to, you know, I think Sid Hague should do this job. And then my career starts all over again. I mean, the, the big action starts all over again. And then they see too much of me, and then it goes away, and then it comes back, and Goes away and then it comes back. I I can have got many ways to put food on my table. I'll, I'll do and the, the thing here's a, here's see here's the point why, why I do so many conventions is a hedge against having to just do stupid stuff for for a little money to you know pay the bills. That can be more detrimental to your career than helpful. And the, and, the, and the money isn't spent. I mean I actually had somebody offer me a hundred dollars to come up to their hotel room at a convention and do a scene for their movie
0: you were talking about how being on you know all these TV shows would get you do, more TV shows were there any that you wanted that you couldn't get like it like you really wanted to be on Miami vice or something like that and it just never happened do you have any regrets of you really wish you had been on a certain show?
4: Hmm. I don't, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I remember saying, oh god, I gotta be on this show and then and not getting it. Because I, I did some of, the, some of the greatest shows. I mean, I did nine Mission Impossibles, okay? And that was like the number one rated show on the air. Mannix and, and, you know, all the rest of that stuff. Um, that I did through the years of the Man from Uncle and all of them. those were good shows, you know, so I really i, I really can't remember saying, God, I want to see that show, and, and I'm not getting it. I mean, there's shows that I've wanted to do, but that I haven't you know I, I didn't have this burning desire to to get it done if
0: you're gonna hire Sid Hag, you need him to kill a regular or something,
4: yeah, I've I've beaten up more good guys than even shake Stick. stick It's funny. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll go on a show and just as a joke, one of the leads you say, oh, no, not this guy again, you know. Wagner, Wagner Wagner. He said, oh, we can't work together anymore. After I did a um, uh, heart-to-heart, I said, why? He said, because the first time we worked together, you threw a knife at me. And the second time you worked, we worked together, you threw a bale of hay at me. And on... Um, heart to heart, there was this confrontation, and I picked up a love seat and threw it at him. He said, "And so, like, what's next? A, a Volkswagen Bug or something?" So it was—I mean, it was all a joke, and we had a good time with it. But yeah,
0: you know. with, with all of the the retro television, and you have all these retro TV channels now. Do you ever flip channels and find that just like when they were on the air, and you were on something every single night, it's the same thing now that you know you're on. You know, nine different shows in one week on the retro on the retro station. Does that give you a, a little twinge of
4: nostalgia? Well, yeah, it does. And it, and uh, I don't, I'm not a remote guy. Okay, slip uh, through the channels. People come up and see, you know, in a coffee shop or whatever, and say, "I saw you on you know my uh, uh, whatever show," you know, um, the Lucy show. Uh, last night, and I well, cool, did you like it? He said, oh, God, it was so funny, and da da da, this that, and everything. So, you know, I, I I get a good feeling from that, and the fact that those things lasted, and they're still playing, and they're, and they, you know, gives you kind of a good feeling that something that you did, uh, wound up being something that, that, that just lasted through the years. You know, I mean, I, I've been doing this for 54 years.
0: Well, since you have been doing this for 54 years, do you get sick of people like me constantly asking you about all these things that you've probably told these stories a hundred times? Or do you, enjoy, do you enjoy relating these stories to the people who grew up watching your stuff?
4: I, I enjoy it, okay? And, and, I, and I think it serves a purpose, okay? Not for me, but for the people that I love, you, know, you know, like yourself. Who, uh, are interviewing me, if something that I say strikes a spark in you to make you push yourself a little harder or stick with whatever it is that you're doing, uh, gives you a little lift here and there. You see, that's, that's, uh, that's very important for me because nobody, very few people understand this, but yeah Season anymore. I mean, shows start up in, you know, January or they start up in March or, or whenever, you know, in the series. So uh, it's kind of freewheeling now, so they don't really pay that much attention to the to the season in terms of how they're scheduling their shows. And I'm also, you know, besides Bone Tomahawk, I'm doing a very interesting project. has ever been done I've been told they're using life-size marionettes it's all of my work is voiceover but you know the the idea of using life-size marionettes is kind of kind of interesting that that got my attention right away
0: but I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me because like I said I grew up watching your stuff I know my audience is a little younger than I am but they probably grew up watching your stuff even if it's in retrospect, from the Rob Zombie stuff, because like you said, a lot of people think you that you started your career with House of a Thousand Corpses. So uh, I just I, I want to thank you not only for your body of work, but for being as down to earth and awesome to people like me and to the fans as you are.
4: Well, wow. thank you. I had a good time. The time just kind of flew by here. Oh my God, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's an hour later.
4: And, and, and you know, see, I mean, when we're when we're working here like this, and we're just talking and having a good time doing it, the time flies by. I mean, I, I did a, uh, a convention, Kansas City. I was on the early morning radio with Doug Badley. It was an hour and fifteen minutes, commercial free.
0: like I said I had these weird questions about just very specific things about your career like oh you were on an episode of that tell me a little bit about that or oh cuz like I said I, I wasn't kissing ass when I said I thought you upstaged the A team on their own show
4: well that was kind of that was that was it was kind of fun uh and the and the thing you know they they gave me that nickname on the show they they started calling me lizard breath and the morning after the show Table just looked up and he went, Lizard Breath. And just to play with him, I walked up to him and I said, You might notice that there's no bars between you and me right now. And he he started apologizing all over the place and I started laughing. I said, I'm just playing with you, man.
0: People like you and Michael Ironside and John Saxon, the people who almost always play a heavy, tend to be the nicest people in real life.
4: I think it's just a a thing of you want. To show people who you are as opposed to who they think you are. I mean, people look at me and go, oh god, I better not, you know, piss that guy off because he'll kill me. Well, I'm not going to kill anybody. Okay? Relax. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's a job. I'm just doing my job. And if I scared you, then I did my job. Here's the thing about Sid
0: Haig. You cannot find somebody who has a bad thing to say about this man. Whether it's a fan interaction, whether it's working with him, whether it's just conversing with him, whether it's running into him on the street, Sid Haig is one of those guys just seem to be a genuine person. After that interview I did with him, we sat and talked for like another hour, just not about his movies, just about movies, like stuff he likes to see, what we'd watched recently. Sid Haig could not be nicer, and I dare you to find a negative fan interaction or a negative interaction on set with this man.
2: Yeah, everything I've seen, it's it's uh, really a testament to how fantastic he was, both as an actor and as a person. There's not really much I can I can add to that. I, I agree. I've seen absolutely nothing negative. When when it comes to the guy, he's a complete class act. He's talented. He's friendly. He understands
1: the value of his fans. Even in some of the really bad movies that he's done, he never phoned in his performance in a way, kind of like Lance Henriksen, where just absolute genuine class, he has given fantastic performances and never belittles his fans.
0: There are, there's only a few actors where you can say, I don't know of a single negative story. Angus Scrim is another one. Every single person oh, yeah. I've ever known that has worked with or met Angus Scrim says he is the nicest person you will ever have met. And Sid Hag now takes one of those
2: slots. I'd add another name to the list and fortunately this guy this guy's still still with us, Michael Ironside. Not a not a negative thing to be said about that guy either. When it comes to Sid Hag, what do you think
0: his legacy is going to be? Do you think with his death people are gonna go and dig out, you know, the random episodes on Vimeo or Daily Motion of him on Quincy M E or the A team or his amazing stories or his old FBI episodes from the sixties and all this? Or do you think that it's just his legacy? Is going to continue to be the clown guy from the Rob Zombie movies.
2: I kind of hope that's not the legacy. But if it is, I mean, at least people remember him for something. But what I'm hoping happens is now, especially since he's passed, people are going to go back down his backlog, back catalog of, of movies, of TV, of everything he's done and, and check it out. That's what I'm hoping happens is that this uh his passing creates uh, opens up a new gate of uh fans of the man's work because his work really does deserve to be uh, a lot more appreciated than it is.
0: What I'm looking forward to when fans go back and look for some of his old TV work is he didn't always look like Sid Haig. You know, we're used to him with the shaved head and the beard. Sometimes like I remember when he was on Hill street blues, he was completely clean shaven, was wearing glasses and he was a Jewish diamond dealer until he spoke. I didn't even recognize it was Sid Haig. (laughs) He does not look like Sid. You're like, Oh Jesus, that's Sid Haig. Holy crap. I'm, I'm hoping people find that when they go back and look at some of the weirder roles, like like when he was in Diamonds Are Forever. He's just one of the thugs that throws the chick out the window. Duh, I didn't even know there was a pool down there. And he's got no beard or anything, and he's got the top hat. He doesn't look like Sid Haig at all. So <laughs> I, I kind of I want people to go back and look for some of these ones and go, whoa, does he look different.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think in general, because of the way the world is, most likely he'll be remembered for his most recent, role, which will be uh, Captain Spaulding. So, I think that uh, for the foreseeable future, people are going to say, hey, you know, it's really sad, Captain Spaulding. They're not going to go back too far into his uh, catalog. I mean, there will be the people who do, but it's not going to be quite as much as that is. One thing I'm hoping, Jason of Star Command is going out of print. It's really expensive. It's like 150 bucks for the set now, and I am hoping that maybe, because I have a feeling that that was shot on film, so it would be awesome if they went back released that on blu-ray or something went back and remastered it and released it and i think that would actually probably get a little bit of attention where it would be like oh yeah he was an awesome villain in this so he wasn't just captain spaulding that remains to be seen and that's kind of up to whoever owns the rights to that i personally would like more people to check
0: out him as tax on mary hartman mary hartman but like i said there's a lot of people who probably are not gonna have the patience to sit through a sat- a completely played straight satire of 70s soap operas to get to the great stuff. So, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, if you guys liked All in the Family and the Jeffersons, this is the same kind of thing, it just- it's gonna take a little bit of work, but- I, I think Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman is one of the most subversive television shows of the entire 1970s, and nobody but me
1: seems to remember this goddamn show.
0: So uh, on that note, what is the favorite role of
1: Sid Haig to you? I'm going to have to go with, with Dragos from G- Jason of Star Command. Uh, maybe that or possibly as a Cutter. In the aftermath, which is a post apocalyptic film, not surprisingly. Oh, um, he is brutal in that. From man. the early eighties. So uh yeah, that's uh yeah, he's uh he's really, really a good bad guy in that. So uh and it's a post apocalyptic movie, and you know, you know me and loving post apocalyptic movies. So funny because again, he's like the nicest guy, and the nicest guys play the best villains. I would I would kind of tie it either one or one of those two, either Drago or Cutter. Galaxy of Terror. Um, one of my
0: favorite- he, 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 li- he lives and dies by the crystals? Yes,
2: that's, uh, not only one of my favorite roles of his, but one of my favorites, uh, of the- Earlier, like sort of eighties uh, science fiction era Corman stuff. It's just such. It's a slick movie. It's a great watch. Everything looks awesome. I, I got to go with that one. That's that's one I I revisit uh, pretty frequently.
0: I'm gonna go with either text from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, or like with Cecil Dragos. If you dr- if you grew up on Jason of Star Command, at the time this was the most expensive kid show ever. You can kind of tell. I mean, it looks cheesy to today's audience.
1: Man, Cecil, when we were growing up. A kid's show that looked like Star Wars, you know? Oh, yeah. It was a big deal. Like I said, I didn't see it uh, until, I, I didn't see it at the time when it was on, but I saw it later, but it still held up very well. I think it's still, I mean, it, there's it's on YouTube, so you can watch clips of it and episodes. I still think it uh, it has a slickness to it, and it actually, I know some people might call it blasphemy, but I think it looks better than Battlestar Galactica. And I'm not crapping on Battlestar Galactica, just saying there were a lot of times where you could kind of see the compositing in, in Battlestar Galactica, and I think it was uh, a little bit nicer in um jason of star command i
0: also think it's funny that everyone who remembers jason of star command remembers dragos
2: do they remember jason no <laughs> well he was they remember a, dragos he was such, a, such an over-the-top villain in that show wasn't that the one where he's got like the sort of robotic eye, eye thing in the red screen? yeah he
0: mm-hmm. yeah he
2: was basically pl- he was basically
0: playing cyborg ming the merciless it was awesome and he, he loved that role. He had so much fun in that. And he said in an interview that Lou Shimer didn't know this at the time, but Sid was going through a really rough patch in his life, both financially and emotionally. And Jason of, getting Jason of Star Commands, he might have saved his life. And he, he, he told that oh, to wow. Lou Shimer years later. And Lou Scheimer jokingly said, Oh, I could have got you cheaper then. <laughs> That's the kind of relationship that they had. You know what? It it, it seems like they really liked one another, though, too. Use the Nord code, 1201beyond.com, backslash DromeVPN. Use the Adam and Eve code, Drome. But remember, Sid, hey, go and watch... Don't watch one of his movies. Go and find some of his weird TV stuff from the 70s and 80s. You can find some of that on YouTube or Daily Motion or something. Go watch some of that and see why Sid Haig was a national treasure and why my generation grew up with Sid Haig. Keep one in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
4: I feel so good. I feel so numb, yeah.